once again to Cinema Wheeler Tay. Uh, we're here, uh, as usual, with uh, Scott and Tony. Mm-hmm. Hi. And we have a very special guest today. He's uh, one of our favorite uh, improvisers here in Columbus and one of our favorite people, period. Uh, the one and only Joe Teeters. Hello. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It's nice having you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming. Great. Yeah, thank you. So today we're going to discuss a movie that uh, I know that I think you've named as one of your personal favorites, if not your favorite, uh, and it happens to be a, an important movie for me too, uh, Back to the Future. Um, and uh, this movie to me is very special for a number of reasons, but uh, I was going to, we had just watched it and uh, we'll go ahead and discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'll do. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we normally do in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have essentially set the scene for what's going to happen. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. We're, boom, we're, we're heading in that direction. <laughs> Just like the movie. We, uh, I've kind of told everybody how this is going to develop and, and move You're in. building up the dramatic suspense. That's Set right. expectations. Exactly. <laughs> yes. This is the screenwriting 101 that's what we're establishing here. So, uh, the movie uh, was released on July 3rd, 1985, so it was obviously a 4th of July uh, movie, and um, it was released by Universal Pictures, and uh, it essentially was the product of the director, Robert Zemeckis, and uh, his screenwriting partner, Bob Gale. Uh, They came up with the idea because Gale had wondered what it would be like if he went to high school with his father. That was the initial premise. Gale and Zemeckis were kind of like a, a pairing. Like they had believed they written a previous movie called Used Cars, which was with Kurt Russell. It was a smaller film from 1980. It didn't do that well. But they had paired with Steven Spielberg. He was like the producer of some of their earlier pictures. Uh, so that's how they got their start in the business. They actually wrote the screenplay for 1941, the Spielberg. It was kind of a, like an infamous Spielberg bomb in like the late 70s. Uh, so it, after that, it took them a while to kind of really establish this property as something that they could sell to studios because of the what had happened with it. Um, they pitched it to a variety of studios. A lot of the studios either thought it was too risque, like they pitched it to Disney because as they developed it, you know, Marty falls in love, you know, is trying to ward off his mother's advances and everything, and Disney thought that was too risque. But then they would take it to another studio and they would say. That's too tame because we're also doing movies like Fast Times and mm-hmm. Bridgemont sure. High and Porky's that are like well far more risque than anything sure. Back to the Future was going for. So it had this weird balance where it was it was too edgy for like a family film, but it wasn't edgy enough for an R-rated comedy. So eighties, that's kind of the world we're we're dealing with. But one man did just uh, support it, and that was Steven Spielberg, and that was like in the. Uh, around right before development and he really loved the project and he was able to get them with Universal Pictures and produce it and when they started filming it uh, Marty McFly was originally cast with uh, Eric Stoltz Uh, they originally wanted Michael J. Fox he was the guy they always wanted for Marty Mm -hmm. but he was tied up with a contract with family ties at the time and he wasn't able to (laughs) get tied up yes his family tied up And uh, they weren't able to get him out of his contract at the time, so they had to cast somebody else. They came up with Eric Stoltz. Uh, and actually, Christopher Lloyd wasn't the original 
uh, actor they had in mind for Doc Brown was John Lithgow. Really? Uh, they weren't able to okay. get. And so I guess they, they got into Lloyd. And they actually filmed about two-thirds of the movie with Stoltz. Wow. Two-thirds of the movie. Everybody else had been cast. Leah Thompson, Tom Wilson, all the other principals of the movie were all was together. Was Christopher Lloyd at this point? When they did yes, Christopher Lloyd was even in it. And there's footage out there that you can look for with Eric Stoltz in that role. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't working out. He had nothing to do with his talent. They all thought he was a great actor, but he was too much... He lacked the comic timing they were looking for that that Michael J. Fox is known for, the timing, the reactions, and everything. They just weren't getting that from him. So Spielberg and Zemeckis shut the, print, the production down and fired Stoltz because he just wasn't working out. So they... Went back to Michael J. Fox to see if he was available. Uh, Gary Davis Goldberg, who was the producer and creator of Family Ties, mm -hmm. said, um, we got to give Michael this opportunity because we're just going to go around again. This is a mm -hmm. huge movie. And they said, we're going to work it out with you. And Michael J. Fox figured he could work out. So he was filming both the television series and the movie simultaneously wow. that yeah. period. And it came together, and that's how we got... Uh, Back to the Future. So the first thing I wanted to talk about... Was this movie before or after Teen Wolf? I think if I had read before, Teen Wolf was was filmed before Back to the Future, but it was released after Back to the Future, which knowing if you've seen Teen Wolf makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what you want right out before Back to the Future to establish your film career. Yeah, without looking that up, I would say that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I wanted to go around the table, and I actually want to start with Joe about what was your f first impression of the movie? What was the first time you heard it, or the first time you saw it? What, how did how did you? What was your initial reaction to the film? Oh well, you know, July of '85. That is the summer between my sixth and seventh grade years in school. So I am uh, twelve years old at that time. Um, so that that movie came and hit right in my sweet spot. I'm fit the perfect demographic for this summer popcorn action flick. And for me personally, it had all the elements that, that I love in movies. It, uh, science fiction, time travel. Time, I'm a sucker for time travel movies. So uh, this movie, uh, had I been... Um, had I been an adult and had all you know un uh, all this disposable income to where I could go to the movies every weekend, I would have seen that movie every weekend that summer. Um, but as it was, that that summer was the summer in my memory, the summer of Back to the Future. So, yeah, and, and that's kind of my memory of it too. I actually didn't see it when it was initially in theaters. I saw it when it was, uh, I think, when it came out on video a year later. My first impression was seeing it in the, in the newspaper. I'd always see that that uh, poster for Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox in front of the DeLorean with the bolt. And I thought it was like, oh, this is a terrifying film because I didn't know it was a comedy based on the picture. And I didn't even know it was Michael J. Fox at the time. You just saw that picture. But I was a big fan of his because I was a big fan of Family Ties. It was on at the time. It was probably my favorite television show as a kid. Yeah. Um, and I was a big fan. I think I also remember Teen Wolf was coming around at that point, too. And I was just like, he became my favorite actor at that point. Uh, so I eventually, we first bought 
um, our family purchased a VCR around that time, so it was fairly new. Like that was a big deal back Absolutely. then to actually own sure. a VCR. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the first movies I remember renting regularly was Back to the Future. I remember renting it the first time and loving it. And I think we continued renting it constantly. So I was watching it over and over again. And one of the things I love is like, I was watching it like maybe a year after 1985. So it was still fresh. So you would have, you would see the Burger King sign and everything else. Mm -hmm. And it looked just like your neighborhood outside. Like, because that movie emphasizes that it's in 1985 so much that it was so instantly relatable. If you grew up back then, if you were a kid from the eighties, this is like an eighties movie to me and nothing brings me back to that decade because of that more than this film. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, uh, not, not to say that I idolized, I idolized Michael J. Fox or, or the character Marty McFly, but that certainly hit, um, it, it was pop culture. It, it was the, the pinnacle of pop culture of 1985. Everybody wanted to dress like Marty McFly. You had I know that I red wanted vest to dress. I, I had a faux red vest. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have that exact red vest or that denim jacket. <laughs> but that's what 12 year old Joe Teeters was shooting How about for. The Nikes? Did you have the Nikes? Uh, I did not have the Nikes. I had an off brand uh, plastic tennis shoe from Kmart. But, uh, <laughs> you could have drew that. As does we. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, you. That that whole look of wearing that vest, that vest over top of a denim mm-hmm. jacket, um, skateboarding. Skateboarding was was really yeah. big, and especially you see throughout the film, uh, especially the beginning part of the film where he's tooling around 1985 Hill Valley, grabbing hold of vehicles and, mm-hmm. and hitching rides and stuff. I wasn't so daring to do that, yeah. but my friend, my friend Shannon and I, we would pull each other around on bicycles by tying ropes to the bike to bicycles and pulling each other yeah. around. So. Um, so you're just kind of the safe version of Back to the Future. <laughs> sort of, yes. Marty, yeah, you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, you, were, the, you were the cautious Marty McFly. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I didn't have a Doc Emmett Brown to uh, corrupt me. <laughs> That's right, you didn't have like, that bad influence. Yeah. Well, the thing, too, is the character of Marty McFly is just, it's kind of a, it's the everyday teenage boy, you know? At least I'm not a teenage boy, and I was not a teenage boy ever, nor will I ever be. Certainly not in 1985, but I feel like if I were just like you, you, you can kind of identify with that. Mm-hmm. Sure, and he and he had several elements there. Um, the slacker, you know, he yeah. was he was a, he was a slacker, uh, underachiever, mm-hmm. uh, want to be rock star. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what was he though? I mean, it's hard to get. He's not like a nerd. No, but you don't, like the, you don't get the you don't you don't get a sense that they try to make it clear that he's like going nowhere. Right, but. Mm-hmm. There's other elements like he's got a girlfriend and, he, and he's kind of cool. He's got the rock. When he goes back in time, he's he's it's made very clear that he's got you know he's a cool guy. Um, so it's kind of hard to to categorize of what exactly demographic. Well, I feel like he's kind of your everyday guy. You know, he sort of fits into his yeah. own mold. Yeah, I mean, you don't see enough interaction with him in 1985. Yeah, but he's a skateboarder, which is cool. Skateboarder. He's in a rock band, which is cool. Yeah, he wears. <laughs> Like, I mean, it seems like he's dressed contemporarily in a, in a hip fashion. Sure. Even for 1985, that was pretty hip. Sure. Um, and he's in it, some group of friends. They're going up to the lake for this big event. Yeah. So he's know. got friends, and yeah. they're going to a lake. Yeah, which is a pretty big thing. I mean, yeah. think about Absolutely. high school mm-hmm. cliques. I mean, yeah. that's a pretty big thing to be in that group that's going up to the lake for the weekend. That's a pretty big thing. Yeah. 
What I love though is he's considered like this, like he loves heavy metal. Like you get the impression he loves heavy metal. But his favorite act is Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> well, he did have that Van Halen tape. Well, he did have a Van Halen. He also oh. has a poster of sports in his his I saw that. bedroom. It's, it's not Van Halen. It's Edward Van Halen. Yeah, that's right. It says specifically Edward Van Halen on it, yeah, which right. I right. and also when he's called upon to play a song in 1955, he picks Chuck Berry, which is a classic guitar. Johnny song. B. Good. Well, he probably yeah. chose that because he's trying to fit in. Yeah, no, true. In the fifties, you know. Because right. remember, he did play. I think it was like a Van Halen esque song yeah. after that, and he's like. You're not ready for that yet. Yeah. Well, actually, it was like uh, he he extended Johnny B. Good yeah. into a Van Halen. Okay. Ah, so you so. remember that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he's like, "Your kids are gonna love it." Right. Yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you, in the '80s, I don't think the Van Halen crowd and the Huey Lewis crowd were necessarily mm-hmm. in sync all the time. Yeah, <laughs> they weren't. They weren't. Uh, uh, th- that was not a pairing you would see on the same bill at a, at the Newport. Or Although in 1985 you would, because that was after Van Halen made 1984, which was a huge pop. That was a big hit. album. I mean, Jump would be played next to Power of Love, teacher. right? Well, Huey Lewis, I think, was more of a baby boomers guy. Yeah. Like he was like more in the Billy Joel, Elton John crowd. Like more like these are guys that your parents yeah. are listening to. Well, in Marty McFly's defense here. I don't necessarily think he was choosing to listen to Huey Lewis and the Loose. I think it, I, I butchered that name, by the way. I think it, like, it just happened to come on when his alarm clock went off, and it just happened to be playing above his head. He didn't, was not aware that this song was playing. Well, he did not yeah. happen to have a pitch poster of sports in his room. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, they come on the radio, and then when they played it when he's riding the skateboard, was he listening in his headset to it? Or is it just playing over? That's what I was wondering. Are we hearing it? But exactly. he's not. He's just hearing. Exactly. Yeah. I think he's he a... had the Van Halen tape in his headset. That's why it went with him in 1995. Ah, that's a good point because that was the only tape that so, you showed. I don't think it was necessarily Marty McFly's choice to listen to that song. I think it was a soundtrack thing more. Maybe. Really? That's well, he had a pit- poster of sports. That was Huey Lewis. He did have a picture yeah, of sports yeah, yeah. in his bedroom. So he so was he clearly was... a Huey Lewis fan. <laughs> or they wanted yeah. him to be. Yeah. And and I'm hey. <laughs> I'm the biggest. I'm a big supporter of Huey Lewis, so this is not a personal yeah. vendetta. I'm just saying. Okay, it's... but this is the weird reality. Huey yeah. Lewis is in the movie, but this music is playing. So in this world that they created, Huey Lewis exists in the form that we know it. Sure. But there's also a guy that looks like Huey Lewis that judges rock acts <laughs> and judges them to be just too darn loud. <laughs> right, right, too darn loud. And uh, and he got mad when Marty McFly was playing more Van Halen type music. Yeah. Wasn't that? Yeah, it was too darn loud. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably like, yeah. you don't remember what you actually enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. If you played more of what the music you listened to, you would win this, <laughs> win this gig. For sure. In, in 85, Huey Lewis was pretty big in 85. Yeah. yeah. So yeah he was, was all over the place. Mm-hmm. And... You know, the caveat with this, the reason he got involved with the movie in the first place was uh, they originally wanted him to write a song for Ghostbusters, and he turned it down. And so they hired Ray Parker Jr. to write the song for Ghostbusters, which sounded eerily similar to I Want a New Drug. So Hugh Lewis ended up suing Ray Parker Jr. Really? Yes, because he said the song, the Ghostbusters theme, is basically a rewrite of I Want a New Drug. And so as a result of that, Hugh Lewis realized, I lost a lot of money doing this. Uh So he signed on with Back to the Future, not really knowing too much about it, just because he didn't want to lose out on movie money anymore. So let me get this straight. You wrote, I want a new drug for Ghostbusters. 
No, no, no. Just no, to yeah. clarify, he wrote "I Want a New Drug" just as a song. <laughs> you didn't write it in anticipation, right? But they wanted him to write a song for Ghostbusters. So the guy that wrote a song for Ghostbusters, he accused of ripping off "I Want a New Drug." Wow. And so it's just, kind of like the the Vanilla Ice. Yeah, uh, you know, um, yeah, it's a, David a, Bowie thing. It's a fairly famous lawsuit. So during the set, he would go up to people and go, "Hey, is this going to make any money?" <laughs> That's the only thing he was really concerned about with it. Well, I think it's safe to say that he definitely wrote back in time for this movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> If he didn't, that would be weirdly similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wrote, that's the song he wrote for Ghostbusters. Guys, I can't believe it, but I came up with a song about a wild-eyed scientist sending a kid back in time. It's... Is it 1955 or 1999? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a obviously it's not it's not anything new the way soundtracks are tied to movies, mm-hmm. but specifically with this with Huey Lewis's music in this movie, The Power of Love. Instantly, especially if you grew up and mm-hmm. watching this movie, you hear that song. You're immediately in the movie Back to the Future when you hear that song. So it's 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 amazing that tie in of music and movie because the movie kind of has like a cold open. It doesn't open with any blaring music. It's right. clocks ticking. Yeah, you know, and all of Doc Brown's uh-huh. inventions not working well. Well, also know? another interesting thing with the music tie in there is the. If you watch the DVD extras mm-hmm. um, about the, the first movie, Back to the Future, they talk about Alan Silvestri and his his score that he wrote yes. for the movie, and what they the vision that Zemeckis wanted uh, for this movie is they wanted that traditional classic scoring of the movie, mm-hmm. and they already had Huey Lewis there, they already had the rock songs there, yeah. but they didn't want the rock songs to be the overpowering score of the movie. They wanted that classic sound. So it's mm-hmm. interesting that you have. Both of them blended together there very nicely. The rock, the rock music, the contemporary rock music, along with this just amazing orchestration of this film. Yeah, I, I, I noted that too because I think that the music in this is perfectly balanced. Like for the same reasons you mentioned, and I think Huey Lewis, uh, from the pop side of things, is a perfect fit for this movie. Whether it's a perfect fit for Marty, I don't know, <laughs> but it's a perfect fit for the film. I, I think because because Huey Lewis was kind of a not necessarily a throwback to the 50s, but his music was definitely bar band based and it was very, uh, kind of, there's a kind of a nostalgic feel to his music in general. Well, that's kind of what I was going to bring up going off of what Joe said. Having just heard you say that it made me wonder if they did that with a purpose, if they combined a traditional classic movie type score with contemporary music to sort of show the correlation between the different decades in this movie. Mm-hmm. The 1950s, which was more traditional, that's more of the kind of music you would hear, the score, and then the Huey, um, Lewis, Huey, I can't say it, Huey, whatever, <laughs> Huey, um, which was in the The 1980s. front man for the news. Exactly, yeah, yeah the, the news guy. Um, <laughs> so that's, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking too deeply here, but I wonder if that's, you know, in the back burner of maybe why they did that. Well, I'd, uh, what I read is that uh, they based the film in 1955. That, that's the year for, well, mathematically it works out because Marty's 17 in the movie and his parents are 17 in 1955. That's kind of how they, mm-hmm. I think they went 30 years back or well, actually at the time it was, tw- it was 20 years back. Oh, 30 no, years. No, 30, 30, 30 years. I'm not a mathematician. Like, <laughs> no, I'm an English major. But... Uh, 
they also picked 1955 because that was a year when rock and roll, it was the birth of rock and roll, essentially, when it was really burgeoning, and also the birth of the suburbs, when the suburbs were really expanding. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the teen culture was really taking off, or it was a really prominent fixture in the economy. So I think they picked it for very specific reasons. It was kind of like a, a year of change, of, mm-hmm. of adjustment, where things are moving in a certain direction. It was the birth of a lot of things. How old do you think Doc Brown is? I was wondering the same, and I've I always mean, wondered that. Yeah, I, it's like, is he, because in the 50s, he's not. I, I think he was probably in his 60s and the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That's my guess, because in the 50s, he he looked like maybe he was in his 30s. He looks like an old 30, though. Well, that's just It's a harsh hair. 30. That's because his hair, if you take away the goofy hair and the discoloration, his, he looked young. He face. did look younger. Yeah, I'd have to go back and study that to see if there are there any clues anywhere on the newspaper clippings or anything to try Mm -hmm. to get, uh, try to understand the history of that. Because I know in one of the the uh, sequels, which I think it's the second one, or no, it's the third one before he's before Marty's going back to eighteen eighty five. They're talking about his family. They're talking about Doc Brown's family coming here and being the Von Brauns after, but his father changed their name after World War Two. So if you figure he was born yeah. somewhere in the 30s to 40s. So. And the, uh, in 1985, in the beginning part, remember when Marty's in school and he mentions Doc Brown and the principal, it's like, you're hanging out, you know, that Dr. Brown was crazy and he seemed like he knew him. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if maybe they went to school together. Because um, the principal was a, pr- was a principal in the 50s as well. He was still in that role. He looked much younger. Mm-hmm. He was still bald, but he looked much younger. So I wonder if maybe they were classmates, Doc Brown and the principal or something. To me, know. neither character really aged that much. And I think that was really yeah, cool that's about the it. Like, they all looked the, they looked the exact same age yeah. in both both years. Well, they tried know. to. If you notice, they did some aging on yeah. the neck. I noticed that because I didn't yeah. think they did a really good job. His yeah. hair is I mean, really it white. Look, it just... It was like aging from here and then nothing. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> And then they tried to do aging like up in here on Doc and the same thing with the principal. Um, His hair yeah, is like I, white. I agree. Pink. I think the parents looked much better in terms of you could majorly tell they were so much younger in the 50s. Well, the actors, of course, the actors, of course, started off young. Yes. All of the, all of the yeah. teenagers were, you know, teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. going from being aged in 1985 to look 45, 46. Um, so that was... That I just was, yeah. remember being, when I was younger, I couldn't tell the difference between Doc Brown. You know, now I can see it subtly, but yeah. when I watched it when I was younger, I was like, he looks exactly the same, but it never bothered me. Resolution but, resolution in video helps yeah. that a lot, too. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he does have... You could definitely yeah, see yellow yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could see the aging that, yeah. they, that they did. I think part of the appeal of the character of Doc Brown, though, is that he fits in the exact same way in both eras because he's kind of out of sync with either time. Yeah. He's always an outsider, so it doesn't really matter. Are you are you saying he's out of time? I am. <laughs> Just, there's a reason he uses that, uh, that driver's license, yeah. A lot of my... I, I think the core... Uh, appeal of this franchise and we'll probably talk about other aspects of it but I think the real core uh, appeal of this movie and the franchise is the friendship between Marty and Doc yeah sure that's the heart of it what I find interesting about that relationship is and and there's no real there's no real explanation for Mm -hmm. why why they're even friends why I mean 
as you were talking about earlier, Scott, we don't know Marty McFly. Where does he exactly fit in? We know he's this kind of cool, mm-hmm. kind of cool guy. He plays guitar. He he, mm-hmm. uh, uh, he he does these things. But why is he hanging out with this crazy scientist? Does he have an interest in science, or does he just like to plug into his giant amp every now and then? I mean, where did they really get together? I agree. I thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. I kind never did explain it, and I. But then I wondered. Maybe they met in the nineteen fifties. And so they knew they were going to have this friendship. I, I don't know. It's, it's very easily yeah. subjective, and it's easy to get confused. Well, yeah, and, and it's not yeah. important, obviously, ultimately, yeah. to the story. But I think that's one of the things, mm-hmm. as close as their relationship is, mm-hmm. it's like, why yeah. is a 17-year-old kid hanging out with this 60-year-old mad scientist when... Mm-hmm. I, I say mad scientist, but... I think that's the beauty of it, is that the movie doesn't even attempt to explain it. It just is. I mean, that's how strong the chemistry is between Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, that we don't have to have a backstory on their friendship. We immediately buy it from the very first frame, because they are so uh, engaging together. Uh, And it's almost like, they probably, it was probably a gradual thing, I think, where they just kind of met each other gradually over time, and it just, they were so in sync that it just kind of built built from there. I would imagine it would probably have something to do with, like, the the amps and the guitars and everything. I'm sure that was a connection there. They could have also filmed it backwards. I know a lot of times movies will do that when they need a stronger relationship at one point in the lifetime of the movie. They'll film... Like, for example, with this movie, they may have filmed the 1950s scenes first because Doc and Marty are still kind of, like, getting to know each other in a sense because the Doc from the 1950s, it doesn't know who Marty is yet. So they're kind of getting to know each other versus, you know, and then they filmed the scenes in the 80s later where they have that really strong, established relationship. And at that point, these are two actors who have bonded and have worked together now for months, so they're able to convey that. On the screen, I know a lot of times with romantic movies, like The Notebook, for example, they did the same thing. They filmed some of the later scenes where they had just kind of seen each other after X amount of years where they're awkward, and they, and then the scenes where they were madly in love are ones they filmed last, so that way they could have that mm-hmm. that bond. Sure. So they could have did this, they could have did that method with this movie as well, which would make sense, I think, especially since they had another man as Marty prior to Michael J. Fox. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing is uh, the chemistry has really been noted between Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd mm-hmm. is so uh, amazing in this film that it's hard to imagine that if you put Eric Stoltz in that same role, what mm-hmm. that relationship would have been like. Uh, I think both actors are, are are amazing actors in general. Like I think Michael J. Fox, he was kind of an every kid in the 80s. Everybody, like yeah. you said, could identify with him. And he had crack comic timing. Anybody who's done comedy, if you watch Michael J. Fox and the way he delivers a line, is so sharp and so, uh, you know, quick. And then Christopher Lloyd, nobody plays an eccentric like Christopher Lloyd. I mean, he's one sure. of the greatest character actors ever. Sure, and what, you know what I love about uh, Christopher Lloyd in this role? And this, this is something that I've acquired this, uh, I made this observation as an adult, not anywhere near 1985, but watching him in this role compared to other roles that he's done since then, um, you mentioned Clue, someone mentioned Clue earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, when you compare his character of Dr. Brown to his character of Jem from Taxi, mm-hmm. they are just variations on a theme. They are very close together, and you can see glimmers of Jem in Doc Brown when he's, like, especially my favorite, my favorite Jim moment of Doc Brown is at the very beginning when 
they're getting ready to send Einstein that one minute into the future, and he's like, if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, we're going to see some serious shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear Jim in that, in that, just in that one little line of dialogue. Yeah. It's so funny. What does a yellow light mean? It's yeah, that same, exactly. That same exactly. moment. Uh, Reverend Jim is one of my favorite, probably my favorite television character of all time. Mm. Like, I absolutely love him on Taxi. And uh, to watch him in this role, like, as much as there are variations, there's so many distinct differences. Like, his 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 uh, cadence in this is much more direct and distinct because he is a scientist where, sure. obviously, Jim is more laconic. And, sure. But... Uh, there's that wide-eyed thing, like that reaction shot. Whenever he does that wide-eyed, bug-eyed reaction shot yeah. to something, it's always enjoyable to watch. Like, damn, or damn, damn, when yeah. he's in front of the clock tower, you know. Or when the when the car shoots off the model town and catches mm-hmm. catches the bag of rags on fire. They gasp. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> like, you did not expect it. What do you have all those rags <laughs> overflowing in a wastebasket? This basket of oily rags will not be a fire. <laughs> True. It does have my favorite line where it's like, um, I apologize for the crudity of this model. (laughs) The model of the scale. And it's like, a a beautiful model. Yeah. Yeah. How could you build that in one day? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have time to build it to scale. So uh, I think the supporting cast is excellent in this movie, too. I mean, and obviously the core story, like, Doc is kind of like a kind of a guide like Obi-Wan to Marty in some ways of kind of keeping him through this but uh, the the core of this is is Marty trying to get his parents back together in 1955 after he's traveled back in time and I think especially Leah Thompson there's some very tricky scenes that you have to play in this movie because you're playing the mother of this child but then you're sexually attracted to the same child and for 1985 that's kind of quietly risque, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, like it seems like a simple premise, but it's not, I can't imagine this, this script passing through a lot of studios today because of that. And she plays it very delicately. I think it, the reason it works for most people is because of her acting and his acting. Well, I think, I think if you, I mean, for me, I'll be honest, you know, when I first saw this movie when I was younger, that, I mean, I thought that was funny. It made me kind of giggle because you're like, oh, this is her son. It's like you're in on the secret. Yeah. I never looked at it from a nasty perspective. I mean, I never thought, she's in love with her son. That's disgusting. You know, I never looked at it that way. I always took it for what it was, you know, face value. And I think if you kind of go into it with that, with that mindset, it's easy to enjoy. And you're kind of, you just get caught up in that moment. Like, oh my goodness, she just, you know, she's touched her son. You know, and it's silly. It's kind of a funny thing instead of an incestual nasty thing I never ever and even to this day watching it tonight I didn't my mind never went there mm-hmm. I could un- I can understand how especially in the 80s when the, it was still a relatively conservative society how that might happen but for me that never never even crossed my mind really sure yeah. even the, even in 85 uh, I mean I think what you said earlier Sean about them trying to get this movie even made that Disney mm-hmm. re- rejected it because of some of those risque themes and that being one of them um the kind of like tony there even in 85 i don't remember that even even taking it to a level of course i was 12 what did i know but i all i all i really uh, keyed in on was ick ick you're gonna kiss your mom yeah, exactly. it was funny like but yeah. you in on the joke is yeah what i you know i had the exact same reaction you guys yeah. when i was a kid and i think 
this is a result of when people are retroactively looking at it. Mm. It's mm-hmm. it's been around for so long that eventually somebody goes, you know, this is really odd that we're watching a movie about a guy hitting on his uh, his uh, his mother. Right. Or so no, it's actually it's a reverse yeah. mother but, hitting but on his son. The main thing, at least for me, is there is so much more to this movie than that. That is a tiny, tiny percent of what this mm-hmm. movie's about to me. I if someone said, "What is Back to the Future about?" I would the first thing that came out of my mind would not be. A guy getting hit on by his mom. Time traveling yes. incest. Exactly. That is totally not what I would say. I would probably go into the relationship about Doc and Marty and the situation they're in. That's what I would say. I just don't. Or I think, or I think meeting your parents. I think is or the crux. Seeing your parents in the fifties. Right. Seeing what yeah. your parents were like when they were your age exactly. is probably the most. Um, yeah, but you know, taking the taking the whole idea of incest out of it, um, yeah. the idea of. It actually it, it it makes perfect sense if you think about the the seventeen year old Marty going back to nineteen fifty five and his seventeen year old mother being attracted to him in the sense that he's half his father mm-hmm. you know aside from the whole situation of him getting hit by her by her dad's car and mm-hmm. the whole Florence Nightingale way set up in the movie yeah. but he is a he's a seventeen year old teenager she's a seventeen year old teenager and he's half of his father so. She could naturally be attracted to him, and know? they also made points. I know that at least they did with um, Marty's grandmother, where, and I think even Marty's mom may have said, "You know, you look familiar to me. Have we met?" So there's instantly this sense of closeness, you know, yeah. like you know this person. So mm-hmm. that I think makes you more, you know, inapt to be open with them or close with them or feel like you have a bond. Just mm-hmm. like in real life, you know, if you if I know for me, I've met some of my parents really good friends when they were kids and I call them aunt and uncle they're not actually my aunt or uncle but I just have a sense of closeness because I'm like you hung out with my dad Mm. you know like you're close to me even though you're really not I don't know maybe that was something to consider too no I I think that's that's why it works I think there's a warmth to the whole Mm -hmm. thing and it's it's fun and, and it's totally it really works um you know I think that angle we were talking about earlier is retroactively. People get snarky about things because they like to find plot holes. It's, it's like with anything else. Um, and that was uh, one of those things, I think, that just comes up over time on the Internet and stuff like that where people yeah. just like to point this out. Um, well, you know what? I, it's funny you talk about the snarky, retroactive snarky comments and stuff. Uh, when I watch this movie, I think it's funny that compared to today, the way high schools are today, mm-hmm. you couldn't set a movie to where someone travels back to 2015 and just automatically walks into the high school mm-hmm. with their father and mother and just says, oh, I go to school here. You know, he, he just walks right into the, into yeah. the school in 1955, mm-hmm. sits down in the cafeteria, the principal even walks up to him while he's getting into a fight with Biff and nothing said about it. He just yeah. leaves, you know? It's like, yeah. like that could, that would not happen today the way schools are have to be locked down and stuff. So. I know, yeah, exactly. Look at it now. Like, like Biff is a tame bully compared to what's happening nowadays. Right. Uh, they also, uh, um, oh, goodness. Oh, he's a drunk Lorraine's rapist. father probably also just would have hit, would have been like a hit and run. He never would have took the kid in their house and put him up for the night. It probably would have been a hit and run or, you know. I don't know. I, yeah, I slightly disagree that he's a tame bully. He does get drunk all the time, and yeah. his attendance to rape. 
<laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, that was definitely <laughs> sexual uh, deviance. That he was, was attempting to rape Lorraine. <laughs> Lorraine. Multiple attempting. times, yeah. mind you. Multiple times. Yeah. And, and laughing about it, too. Like, yeah. really getting a joy out of raping Lorraine in the car. It was... Yeah. Okay, here's what I don't understand. They've well, all... this was a misogynistic time. Well, Let's face it, the 50s. I mean, women 55. had their role, their place in the world. So that could also attribute to, not that I condone or agree or am defending um, Biff, I'm just saying that could also be a part of maybe why they had him laughing. Mm-hmm. I well, know. I mean, he was just a terrible yeah, person. Just, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I, when you say snarky comments about plot holes, the major plot hole for me is his parents have met this Marty, this Calvin Klein guy, uh-huh. and then their son grows up to look exactly like him. Yeah. How does that... Well, why doesn't George say, hey, Lorraine... Do you ever run into that Marty guy again, <laughs> ever? Yeah. And, and why does our you... son look exactly like him? And why did you want to name him Marty? <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. In the final scene, they seem to be giving Biff credit for how they met. But it's like, what about this Marty guy that yeah. really made the effort to get you guys together? Yeah. Oh, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's funny you talk about Biff in that final scene. Something I was thinking as we were re-watching the movie is... Um, when you see that final scene, it's supposed to be... You see how everything changed because of Marty going back in time. Um, obviously, George and Lorraine, their life is way better off now because That's of totally. his interference. Uh-huh. But then you see Biff, and you try to... It's kind of played as it's a step down for him because mm-hmm. he's this meek and mild. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I, the, that I noticed along the way... Biff actually kind of made out here in the deal. He's no longer some middle management supervisor. He's a small business owner. He I owns this. Yeah. Yeah. He owns this yeah. auto detailing. Yeah. You know? And he seems very happy like, for others. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the selfishness is completely yeah, gone. Yeah. He is he is a helpful individual. Yeah. He's excited for George McFly when he gets his book in. And Marty too. He's giddy. You know. He's giddy. Yeah. yeah. His, his life turned out very well. Tom Wilson, I think, is kind of an underrated aspect of this movie because if you watch his... I think of all the actors, in terms of playing different ages of the same character, I think he's the most convincing as both the middle-aged man and the younger guy. I don't know. George McFly is so cute. He's very convincing when he's nerdy. And then at the end, when he's a little bit more sophisticated, he's got his gray hair, Mm -hmm. you know, and looks cute. I thought he did really well. Like, I especially thought so tonight. I just... You know, I've yeah, never like really him. seen him much in anything else. Are you saying you don't either? find Tom Wilson cute? No, I don't. <laughs> but I just think he was just adorable. He really took on that role. Of course, I don't really know what he's like normally, and I haven't seen him in anything else really. So I know him as George McFly. <laughs> YouTube. Uh, Chris Crispin Glover. I just feel kind of like he, I think he did a good job. He convinced me that he was. Well, I have no yeah. doubt that Crispin Glover d- delivers an outstanding performance in this movie. I mean, it's almost an iconic performance. Yeah, I mean, his mannerisms, how he's like always kind of fidgety and, you know, he, yeah. he has his quirky ways. But, but to your point, I mean, Tom, Thomas Wilson does a, a great job in the beginning of that as that middle-aged bully. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, very, he's, he's very, very convincing as a, as a middle-aged uh, drunk Mm-hmm. Years of, of years of being a drunk and bullying people. He's very convincing in that role. And the bullying, I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but the actual verbiage was identical 
mm-hmm. to the same verbiage that he was saying in the 1950s yeah. to George. Well, a lot of it. You know, the, the whole, like, um, what was it? You know, your shoes untied. Yeah, don't week. be so gullible. It was pretty yeah. much exi- word for word. Yeah, and I got to get my yeah. reports. Yeah, there's. So it just goes to show that he hasn't really, well, at that point, he hadn't really changed. He well, he, he, he has changed. Day. He sleeps in on Sundays when he's little, and he sleeps in on Saturdays when he's little. It's <laughs> 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 But you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was a reflective of the fact that George didn't really change, so things kept Kept going on the way they were. Yeah, I just think it was the bully archetype. I think everyone thinks of Biff immediately. I'd, I'd say, or it's like mm-hmm. an obnoxious, kind of insecure mm-hmm. asshole. I think Biff is like the archetype for that. I think sure. that's the first uh, character people think of when they. And the other, uh, another character from the '80s that people think of, the bully and other older brother, the guy that is in this movie is. Uh, <laughs> Huh. What's his name? Uh, Wayne, Wayne from the Wonder Years. Yeah, yeah. Wayne, Wayne Arnold. Wayne, yeah. yeah, who was yes. a bo- kind of a b- big brother bully, at least early he on. He played bullies in a lot of movies because in the Monster Squad, which is one of my favorite movies that came out, I want to say in the late 80s, like 88 or 89, it was, I think he may have been doing uh, Wonder Years simultaneously. He played the bully in that movie too. He was older. Butthead was really the choice of word for bullies in the 80s. Like, Absolutely. Butthead, you know, you knew you were a bully if you were... <laughs> You'd get called a butthead. And yeah. It's, no, you've been bullied if you've been called a butthead in the 80s. Absolutely. And that actor is Jason Hervey. That's it. Mm-hmm. Is his yeah. name. And a uh, little side note for Columbus Trivia, he actually married a lady from Worthington here. I believe oh. from Worthington. So you potentially could see them at the Worthington Mall from time to time when they're back in town visiting family. There you oh, go. Nice. I know he's like a big producer now. He's producer, director. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. everybody from the Winter Years directing. Yeah. Fred Savage. Yeah. Oh, I love his younger brother, Ben. Ben Savage, yeah. It is funny, though. You mentioned that. Tony mentioned that this, the verbiage is the same. Yeah. They do a great job of when they show you that opening scene, uh-huh. they like, have things that they can kind of reverse mirror for the 50s, like Joey's in jail. Uncle Joey's yeah. in jail. Oh, I mean, yeah. The yeah. writing, the writing of, yeah. this, of this whole series yeah. of films. And what I find very interesting about the writing, it just shows you the master work that both Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis do in their storytelling. Yeah. The fact that they wrote this movie with no intention of doing a two and three. Yeah. And no intention of doing a two and three until it became such a big success that Are summer. you sure they didn't have Absol- intention of doing the second? Because they set it up that way. No. They had no, no? intention of okay. doing a sequel to, to this film. But once it blew up, mm-hmm. they were like, "All right, well, we gotta, we gotta go do this." And yeah. so, but they got the ending is so ready for a sequel. That's what I said. Yeah. That's what no, I was absolutely. So but yeah. they, but they had no story yeah. there. They yeah. had no story there, so they had what to put are, it together. Aside from the whole 1950s, which I loved, I remember seeing. I've I've always been an old soul, and I've always been very partial to the golden years of Hollywood. So when I was a little girl, when I first saw this, I want to say I was like. Mm-hmm. Anywhere between you know eight and twelve, I don't remember. It was, came on TV one night, and I was watching it with my dad. Sure. But that's what really took me in was the whole fifties, going back to the fifties, uh, the costumes, just everything about it. I was like, I want to go there. Yeah. Um, but with that having been said, I love how they really took the innocence of the fifties and kind of played up on that, like the whole Calvin Klein bit about his underwear. And again, you feel like as the viewer, you're part of the joke. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you're in 1985 or whenever watching this, so you know who Calvin Klein is. But, you know, when she keeps calling him Calvin and <laughs> just some of the other things, like when Christopher Lloyd said, when Marty made a reference about, you know, potentially being gay or something, and Christopher Lloyd says, well, don't you want to be happy? Well, that's I, I a think deleted really, scene. I think. Yeah. Oh, that was deleted yeah. scene. I okay. focus well, on the work that's in front of me on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> no. You guys get what I'm yes, talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that was very smart. It was, yeah. it was also clean. It was fun. <laughs> and I think it was another... 
thing that really made this movie engaging for viewers, and that's why it's so beloved today, is because mm -hmm. anyone can really identify with it um, and find fun in it. You know, humor and fun. There are some jokes, though, that obviously I completely get because I grew up in the 80s, and I'm sure it's lost on millennials that they watch this, like the tab joke and the Pepsi free. Oh, I get all They're that. not, I, I mean, we get it because we grew up with it, yeah. but I'm sure there are people like, what the hell's going on? Because these, yeah. these are things that did not, well, tab has a, a longer shelf life, mm -hmm. but Pepsi free had, did yeah. not have a shelf life. Is right. tab even still around? I believe it is. I but feel yeah. like I saw yeah. it recently somewhere. Yeah. But that is was another thing that I loved is when you say, can I get a tab? And the guy's like, sir, you need to order something yeah. first. It's just the innocence. And I just think yeah, it's so cute. And that's kind of my style. So I really enjoyed that. The other thing that might be lost on people is the DeLorean. Because yeah. that was like a prominent, like you said, it came in. It was like a flash in the pan type car, I think, in the 80s, right? It was, yeah. I mean, I uh, as we were watching the movie, we were talking a little about a little bit about DeLorean. I, I actually looked him up real quick just so I could refresh my memory on him and his issues. And he, he worked for, well, well he is. Um, yeah. He was an executive at General Motors, and he started the DeLorean Motor Car Company in actually 1973. Oh. And he had a lot of trouble getting that first car out. And eventually the, that DeLorean that you see mm -hmm. there is the DMC-12 in, featured in the movie. It didn't hit the market until 1981. But by that time, it, it, it came out sales were low the company was in financial crisis and so by 1984 when this rolled around they were making the movie and they ended up settling on putting the delorean in the film the De delorean motor car company was essentially done by that yeah. time right. mm -hmm. um but it was but it has become and i, I mean that that mm -hmm. car is a symbol of the 80s now yeah. all 80s nerds want that car if, that, if only for the butterfly doors. Yeah. Right, right. It's a time gull, machine. Gullwing doors. Oh, okay. Gullwing doors. Well, you can call them butterfly doors. Excuse me, you'll have to forgive me, listeners. I was not born when this movie I was a growing fetus in my mother's stomach in July of 1985. Thank you. Yes. Well, the DeLorean wasn't necessarily their first uh, choice for the time machine. It was actually going to be a refrigerator what? that was going to be nuked. And would s send somebody off into the future. That's silly. But they nixed it because they wanted something exotic, like a car that yeah. would look exotic in the 1950s. Now, Spielberg produced this movie. He would <laughs> revisit to that same idea for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So the phrase, nuke the fridge, when you hear that, uh -huh. that's... Was a, direct, a rejected idea from Back to the Future. Well, I will say it probably was a very good choice. Now, the 80s weren't as litigious as we are today, but... Had they made a time machine out of a refrigerator, I could just see the lawsuits coming in from children putting yes. themselves in refrigerators yes. and dying trying to go to the future. That's precisely why it was nixed, because uh, Semeckis wanted to nix that idea for the, that very reason. Yeah. He didn't want to influence kids to yeah. go into the future. I think, I think it really worked out, though, using the car, and I loved how they did how they correlated the whole car and him coming in in that you know radiation suit being an mm -hmm. alien invasion, yeah. which was very big in the mid-50s, you know, Twilight sure. Zone, the, the, the science blob. fiction theater. Yeah. Exactly. So I think they did a, a really great job of blending that in to well, the reality of some of the things going well, on in the 50s regarding aliens. Well, this movie is just a series of serendipitous events. I mean, <laughs> if you get... And this, in the, if this was reality, anything that happened to you, you would have a magazine with the, the depiction of something that you could refer to instantly. Yeah. Like any alien encounter, you'd have a sci-fi <laughs> magazine with that same alien <laughs> on the cover exactly. to tell you exactly what you're encountering. <laughs> it's very helpful. <laughs> it does. But, 
But uh, old man Peabody did have the typical American response of that totally. time. It's taking human form. Kill it. Yeah. Kill it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all of the people in this movie, can I just say, are terrible shots. Yeah. Nobody yeah. can shoot well in this yeah. movie. I My favorite scene in the movie, and it, it probably has nothing to do with the heart of it, but I love the Libyan scene. I just, you like, do? that whole, oh, yeah, I think it's hysterical, that whole reaction shot with Doc Brown. Because it, it, it's the kind of that absurdist humor that I love. It's, like, really satirical. Because Libya was one of our, I think, main, I think in 85, was probably one of our primary, quote-unquote, enemies of the yeah. U.S., like, along yeah. with Russia and any other Middle Eastern country, I think Iran. Um and just the fact that the doc would buy plutonium from Libyans to set the scar up. He stole it. Yeah, he yeah. stole it, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he ripped stole, them off. Yeah. He exactly, ripped them off. exactly. He gave him a bomb full of shiny pinball machine parts yeah. and kept their plutonium. So, yeah, screw you, Libyans uh-huh. and Gaddafi. And, yeah. But I like how it's introduced at the beginning of the film where you get that newscast Absolutely. about the plutonium being sold, and then he kicks the. Uh, the plutonium. He the, kicks the yeah. skateboard and just yeah. kind of hits the, the thing. That, it's that kind of. That whole front scene, you don't see Marty at all. But, right. but you see him, he has... drops the key. So he has a key. Well, he knows where the key is hidden underneath the door, the door, um, the welcome mat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see him drop the... It's just a lot of those little cool... Well, and there is so much detail throughout the yeah. movie that, that you don't have to... No one has to say. It's it's in the set. Yeah. Especially in that scene, you see newspaper clippings as well. Like you see the newspaper clippings of... Doc Brown's mansion when it burned down. Yeah. So then when you get back to 1955, wow, that's a huge mansion. That's a home. Wow. Yeah. So you know, um, you know what's happened prior to. And I think that was well done. Very smart. I, I'm very detail oriented mm-hmm. by nature, especially when you're working with period films. I'm that my theater nerd kicks in and I'm like, that's not right. It's why I was asking all these questions about the Playboy. I'm like, was that out yet? I'm such a stickler <laughs> for you know sticking by the dates and having accuracy. But I loved how they did that because it really set the stage um, for the movie and it helped us out as viewers later on kind of piece together mm-hmm. what was happening. Yeah. Well, the 80s was filled with openings that were had the, the, the Rude Goldberg machine. Or they were like cartoons. They did a lot of cartoon <laughs> openings. Remember that in the 80s? Well, they did do that. But I'm talking about like, like machines that would like you wake up in the morning. I know Pee Wee's Big Adventure had a breakfast machine, but this oh, movie, yeah. this had this like automated... That was like the dream in the 80s was automated wake up where you wake up and then your breakfast is being made by a computer or a machine. <laughs> Apparently, during the mid 80s, this was a huge was like, a dream. And we're still not there yet. Yeah. We, we need there. Rube Goldberg I mean, machines. Yeah. Well, the same we have is a Keurig. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Keurig. Yeah, exactly. But it's not automated. It doesn't, you know, you can't. It's true. The only thing this movie's button. missing is a fantastic 80s montage. There's not a montage in this movie. There isn't. And I was looking good, for it. That's a good point. There is I, not a montage. I love montages. I do. If, like, this is weird that I've actually given this thought, but I have. <laughs> if if I, like, could do a Make-A-Wish or something, I would want to do a movie montage. Yeah. Have my own movie montage. Like an eight, You can inject an A-team, an A-team style montage Absolutely. of Doc Brown working on the DeLorean to try to get it all... All set up and ready for the trip. I'll have JTT in there. And well, the main problem is it was not directed by Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> it was not directed by Sly Stallone. No, a lot, of, a lot of 80 movies. That was kind of like a staple in the 80s. Yeah, have like sure. a two-minute montage. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll say uh, kind of a opposite, not really opposite of that, but, but different to that. Um, one of the things that I know that I really like about this film is for... Maybe it's not unique to this film, but it just it stands out to me is... 
you really don't have a lot of interaction of the principal players between other people in the film. It really stays tight to those yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. six people. Um, and you don't see a lot of stuff. All, all the scenes go from you know these principles to these principles to these principles to these principles. And you don't have like uh, George McFly off interacting with um, his bullies, his other bullies for an entire scene. You know, It could easily be um, transferred to the stage. I don't know if they've done that. Maybe there's a play or a musical. Not yet, but I'm idea. writing. <laughs> well, because you just said that, it's, it would be a small, tight cast. Yeah. You know, yeah. you wouldn't really need a lot of extras. Or... Yeah, I think it's kind of a self-contained world that way. Like, even though you're mm-hmm. traveling from one year to the next, like you said, it's only six principles. Not all those principles are interacting. Doc barely interacts with anybody but Marty. Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. the only person yeah. he, he interacts with. One thing that I find very fascinating on that note is that Marty McFly is the protagonist of the story, and you could say Doc is kind of like a semi, not really a protagonist, but he's definitely one of the central characters. Usually the protagonist in the story goes through a sort of an arc or a change. This movie, Marty is not necessarily the protagonist, he's not necessarily going through that arc. He is already kind of a complete individual but from the beginning to the end. The people who change in this movie are his parents, parents literally changing. That's, He's the arbiter of change. That's really, in my perspective, what the movie's about. Is in this movie, this the first installment is in many ways about to me the parents, their story. Because though I mean, even though they're, they're not, they are main characters, but that's really what the storyline is focused and based on. In there, it shows them in the beginning, kind of the the life they. They have, you know, they're not happy. The mother drinks. The the father is just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, in his own world. And and then, um, of course, everything happens in the fifties. And then the last scene at the end. It seems to me that that's really the story. Is the the time travel is kind of like it's obviously a major part of the movie because it wouldn't happen without the time travel. But I don't think that's like the purpose of the movie. The story of the movie, I should say, like the storyline. Otherwise, it would end as soon as he got to 1955. Yeah, I mean, that, well... I don't think I'm articulating what my mind is trying to think. (laughs) Well, it's a story about, well, like you said, they came up with a story based on where I met my parents in Mm -hmm. high school. So that was the inspiration for it. So the story is about meeting your parents and Mm -hmm. what, you know, the... Everybody wants to know what their parents would be like when they were their age mm-hmm. in high school. You know, as you get older, you kind of know, you kind of reach those ages that you've seen them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so essentially, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right on that, that it, you know, the story is about, you know, um, but I, I think the time travel makes it possible. That's exactly. what I mean. It's a huge element. It wouldn't happen otherwise. But I don't think, I don't think the, the movie is directly about time travel. Per se, I think that's just the important piece to get to what the story's really about. The real time travel movie would be part two if we ever come yeah. to part two. Yeah, that's that, the that's one that goes into the yeah. mathematics of it. This Absolutely. is more of a heart, a soulful, yeah. heartwarming sure. tale yeah. of. Not the thing I like about this movie too. It's not overly sentimental about anything. Like yeah. it, 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 it's sentimental up to a point, but it also has a very satirical edge. So it's kind of balancing out both, and I think that's what keeps it relevant even today. Like you know. Some movies like this, they could go overboard with sentiment and it kind of overwashes it. But here it's a really perfectly balanced 
film with like it, the tone is almost perfectly blended. Yeah, there's really no sentimental. I don't know of any sentimental. Doesn't even. I know of uh, one of my favorite parts. I love the Enchantment Under the Sea. Yeah. That whole dance segment starting from the beginning when Marty's in the car with his mom. And I love it after when when he punches when uh, George punches Biff and Lorraine's on the ground mm-hmm. and they have that really sweet moment and he you know Glenn puts his hand down and she's looking up at him just so tenderly and he picks her up. That's probably I guess the, mm-hmm. to me. I mean my heart kind of warmed up a little bit when I saw that and then of course at the dance when he yeah. goes and kisses her because that's what the, the heart of the story is really about is them falling in love again. And I, that's what that's what the audience is waiting for. I can't get out of my head though that guy that cuts in line. <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand. <laughs> he's just <laughs> well, he's the guy. They didn't. Sh- this was in the deleted scene. He was the guy that locked um, George in the phone booth. Yeah, and he's also so, in one of the earlier scenes with the um, uh, the kick me putting the kick me mm-hmm. sign on the back of George and uh, his books so out he of his obviously hand had and, something against George. So yeah. are you saying he's a bigger bully than maybe Biff is towards George? Uh, he's a more persistent. <laughs> he's a more constant bully. He's kind of more passive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, the one sequence I think in the movie that I think uh, I do get bored by is the sequence when he's going back to 1985 with the lightning bolt and everything like oh, as yeah. iconic as it is i think the scene kind of drags there really isn't much more going on than the car yeah. getting preparing to go through the lightning bolt well doc yeah. has his challenges with the cords yeah yeah, but, yeah. yeah it gets a little i would say that that's i would have cut i would have made that more streamlined and just go for it mm-hmm. because there's still a lot of movie after that point i mean there's still like 20 minutes yeah. of movie sure Sure. Yeah, the drama. The drama is there. You get two challenges. You get the challenge of trying to get the cable mm-hmm. reconnected, and then you have the challenge of the car won't start. So you add yeah. both of those elements that that mm-hmm. make that scene. The car. Longer. What we learn is DeLorean has well, a terrible and, and starter. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole the fact that everything's time sensitive. We yeah. know yeah. they've got to. They mm-hmm. only have five minutes or whatever. How many minutes it's supposed to be in the movie yeah. until that lightning strikes? Because it keeps showing the clock. So it builds it. Like we're all like, oh, the car's got to start because yeah. he's got two minutes. I have yeah. a question. Does it, does it have to hit exactly eighty eight miles per hour, or did, can you be over eighty eight miles? Can you go like ninety and it still works? Uh, I think. Yeah, I think I think if it's faster than eighty eight, mm-hmm. you're going to be fine once yeah. that charge comes in. Yeah. yeah. But I think if you have plutonium in the chamber and you hit eighty eight, it's you're gone. gone. You're yeah. Gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if he's hitting ninety five, he's good to go. Yeah, exactly. If it if it had to be that level of precision, mm-hmm. there's no way. <laughs> Doc Brown's a smart guy. Uh, Marty's a very capable driver, as we've seen. There's no way they would have worked out that timing to hit that at exactly eighty eight miles per hour, especially because yeah. he couldn't start the car and he didn't start down the road until what thirty seconds after or fifteen. I don't know exactly how long, but that alarm went off. Well before he started the car. He's very yeah. proficient in a lot of things. Driving, skateboarding. <laughs> he's actually a really good guitar player, even though uh, in the scene they say he's too loud, and they yeah. sound terrible. I think they sound bad more than it's too loud. Yeah. Like when he well, goes like, he wasn't playing the right song is the problem. Everybody else was. <laughs> he's playing the power yeah, of love. He was, <laughs> he was playing like some other guitar thing. I think. Yeah, they were out Same of sync. Same thing with the Johnny or the Earth Angel. Like, yeah. he just wasn't playing the right song, yeah. I think. It didn't sound bad. It just he wasn't. I, it, it, oh, and he could sing. Remember? Oh yeah, he, he could sing. Yeah, too. Johnny B. Good. He could sing mm-hmm. too. 
When I think of 80s kids, too, I think of Marty McFly. I think he's the iconic 80s teenager. Sure. I mean, there may be some others, like like maybe Spicoli is maybe, <laughs> but he's such a fringe element. Yeah. But Marty, I think, is I, like the every kid. And, like, and Molly Ringwald, I think, would be the girl's version of Marty sure. McFly. Well, Ferris Bueller is probably the... Maybe. Yeah. He's, he's very much a Ferris Bueller, but not... Would you say he's more famous than... Who's more famous, Marty or Ferris, do you think? Ferris, I mean, the movie's called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. uh, True, but I think more kids beyond our generation are familiar with Back to the Future, more so than Ferris Bueller, I'd say. You know, coming up, you know, being 12 years old when this movie came out, Ferris Bueller was... Right around the same time, yeah. wasn't it? Like it was roughly. It was. It was before Dirty Dancing. I remember that because Jennifer Grey. Um, They're... They're both very, they're both appealing, but I think they're slightly different. Marty mm-hmm. McFly as a teenager is appealing to a lot younger set. Mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller is, I think, I don't think Ferris Bueller is as accessible to preteens as as Back to the Future is. I agree, and this goes back to what I said in the very beginning. Marty McFly is your every man. He's your boy's boy. Yeah. I think Ferris Bueller is a little bit more sophisticated, and I don't mean that as an insult. Mm. I just mean he seemed a little bit older. He, his family seemed like they had money. There are certain elements about Ferris Bueller that I don't think a lot, many people across the board within a certain age range could identify with yeah. as easily as they could with Marty McFly. But they, but they both are certainly iconic teenagers sure. of the 80s, just like, along with Molly Ringwald. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, mm-hmm. you know, those are all... Iconic. And, they all played iconic characters. And I think Marty McFly had the same kind of qualities that I that a lot of girls liked with Molly Ringwald, is that Molly Ringwald was not overly beautiful. She was kind of like your. She was attractive. She was kind of like your average girl's girl. Every she never played really popular girls. She never played nerds. She was always that in between girl trying to make it or get the guy that she had the crush on or whatever. And that's kind of. I think where Michael J. Fox and certainly the Marty McFly character kind of fit in that same mold. Like, wasn't very popular or overly popular, wasn't overly good looking. They kind of lent in the beginning that maybe he got picked on a little bit. Um, but yet he was very appealing to mass, mass, you know, kids because they all could relate to that. I think a lot of people, you know, we all fall into sort of, I don't want to say averages because that makes us sound not as special as we really are. But, you know, on the whole, I think more people, especially when you're middle school and high school, you're kind of, Mm -hmm. you're either that super-duper popular person, that terrible, terrible nerd, or you're just floating along in the middle. Yeah, Marty is more of, like, like an every kid. Like, you know, Ferris, I think, was the most popular kid in school that everybody wanted to be. He was a class clown. Mm -hmm. I think we all knew of Ferris in high school. He Mm -hmm. was kind of, like, the kid that everyone kind of looked up to, the hero. Marty, I don't think, necessarily has that role, per se. But he's not necessarily a nerd, either. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of uh, a kid. He's well-adjusted. He's, you know, kind of finding his own way. He obviously has a... (laughs) has a soft spot for outsiders because he's hanging out with an 80-year-old, 60-year-old scientist, you know. <laughs> but um, but I, I think Marty McFly is very iconic. I mean, just the look of Marty McFly, I think instantaneously people can identify, you know, when you see a skateboard. I, I, I think a skateboarding Marty is one of those images that pop mm-hmm. up into your head more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, he's a, uh, he's Tony Hawk-level skateboarder. I mean, he's... <laughs> he's <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is like I say, like where does he have the time to, to learn all these crafts? So, uh, skateboarding is 
mode of transportation, clearly. Well, he was a teenager. He didn't have a job. Yeah. You know, he could do guitar for three hours and then do skateboarding for two. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but you never question that he can't do this stuff because no. Michael J. Fox sells the shit out of it. He's so natural yeah, yeah. in the movie. You're just like, of course he could skateboard. Of course he could... Uh, travel through time and and the reason why everybody rooted for him too not just because he was a protagonist but because he was at every man he was right there in the middle and I think a lot, a lot of people nobody wanted Biff to win you know no. he's like an underdog just like you wanted George McFly to get Lorraine yeah. same kind of quality as I was saying before he's not your traditional protagonist like mm-hmm. he's more or less he acts as the eyes and ears of the audience like the narrator in a mm-hmm. way because even he's more of the arbiter of change he doesn't really learn a lesson because he's kind of a fully realized individual at the beginning it's his parents that he changes yeah. you know which is kind of a reversal from what you normally would expect from that which is not and what's funny about that character is it's not until you see the completion of the story the two and three mm-hmm. that you see him go through that change you see that character change um, mm-hmm. uh, which is has its seeds in this first movie but it's not really apparent until you pick up and they continue the story in two and three. Because like I said earlier, they didn't plan on writing the story any further than one. Mm-hmm. Um, so they pick up on that whole, um, he doesn't like to be called chicken and you know that causes yeah. him problems. Um, mm-hmm. But he, and So he realizes that and he changes by the end of the whole series. Well, that, that, that's why he's constantly staying up to Biff, even though he, he's very afraid. You can tell in his eyes, like he knows Biff's bigger and yeah. Biff hits him, it's over. But he's not afraid to stand up to him. But you can yeah. definitely say, "Oh, like there's a couple moments when he's like putting yeah. his arm up. And he's like, what did I get myself into?'" Yeah, that look on his face. Well, sure, because Biff towers over. Yeah, him. but you know what's funny about that to me is he is in each of those instances he's taking Biff on, who is who is definitely yeah. a, a lot larger than Marty McFly is. But he's taking Biff on without care or concern about himself because he's trying to protect his father. Mm-hmm. He's trying yeah. to he's trying to protect his yeah. his father and mother getting together. Yeah. But he has no he has no qualms about stepping in and doing that. What's interesting to me is, um, kind of the premise is what what Bob Gale said. You know, his whole what if was, if I went to high school with my father, would we be friends? Would I be friends yeah. with my high school father? Mm-hmm. Is it's a great what if to set up this whole scenario, but you don't really see that in the film because he it's um, he's forced to be with his father in order to save himself. Yeah. Like, it's, he doesn't have a choice. He has to be there. He has to be there with George all the time. He has to try to talk to George. But he, he thinks, like, oh, wow, gosh, how was I even born? You're such a nerd. Yeah. Would he have just walked away if he wasn't forced to be there? Well, there's a moment, I think, that he does find a connection with mm-hmm. his father is when his dad is writing the stories, and he's like, yeah. I don't let anybody read them because I, yeah. you know, I don't want someone to tell me that I'm no good. And Marty says... Um, more than you know or something. He yeah, because he says, but you wouldn't understand that or something yeah. like that. George tells him, oh, yeah. but you wouldn't understand that. Yeah. yeah. I feel kind of like uh, Marty would be a loner. And in a good way, not in a bad way, but even in 1985, he kind of struck me. With the exception of his girlfriend, you didn't really see him, you know, with any other friends. He just kind of was by himself. He was kind of a loner. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I, kind I of feel you're judging same. Marty right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I've been saying the guy's an all-American guy. He's a guy's guy. He's lesser than Ferris Bueller. He's I, not I, you agree with I would, me right would, after I said that, Sean. You said the exact same thing. I would disagree that he's a loner. I wouldn't call him a loner. He may be an independent kind of guy. That's what but, I mean by loner. Well, it's not. Sure, sure. Yeah. Only because he is. there is that whole part of he's going up to the lake. They, as a couple, are going to the lake with other couples for the weekend. So he is. he does have some sort but of But what I mean, you can still be very social, but still kind of be a quasi, like, Independent, like myself, for example, I have very few close, close friends that I would consider close that I am really intimate with. Um, but I'm very social. I have a lot of acquaintances. You know, I'm like a little social butterfly. I'll, I would go, you know, to lake houses and you know, big things. But, but I'm, but I'm still sort of, you know, I like to go out to the coffee shop by myself. I like to have me time. Sure. I like to do things on my own. And I kind of get that impression with Marty, and and I think that's common with a lot of creative people. You know, he did his music and skateboarding and clearly had strong interests. And I think um, that's very common, you know, for people who have interests in things to kind of be more independent than following crowds. Or, you know, like Lorraine, you always saw her with her clan of girlfriends. Marty, I feel like, would totally be the kind of person that, just like the Molly Ringwald type. Well, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, the fact that he hangs out with, Doc Brown mm-hmm. kind of alludes to some sort of yeah. independence or yeah. or because he's hanging out with someone that's clearly 30 years 40 yeah. years older than him I think Doc's his weed dealer honestly probably most likely yeah. that Reverend Jim and, connection once again and, and maybe maybe Marty is his distributor is Doc's distributor at the school maybe he's selling weed around the school that was a good point though mm-hmm about him, you know, and that's kind of what I meant by loner. I, well, I guess that, I phrased it wrong. But. I think I, yeah, I, I think I... I, I was just teasing earlier, oh, but I that's know. like, yeah. Well, I, well that's uh, why I said loner, but not in a bad way, because I, I knew I wasn't perhaps using the right word, but independence is probably a better way to say it. Like, like I know me, I mean, I'll be 30, and, and I have a really good friend, Sally, who's in her 50s. We met when I first moved to Columbus, and she's like a sister-slash-friend, you know, and that's a totally natural relationship that we have, and... I think Marty's kind of that same type in a way, you know? Sure, yeah. And the fact that, you know, he does hang out with Doc kind of mm-hmm. alludes to that, that maybe he can't identify with some of the kids' his age or he just, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I know I'm going on a limb, but I also think Doc's a loner. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's, wait a minute. Uh, I don't want to, you know. You don't know anything about up. him. Yeah. I mean, you know very little about Doc. Yeah. You know, like, little, like, the mansion, but you, yeah. there's a lot of... There seems like there's there's a it's funny to say some in the movie where they go back in time, but there's there's a there's a prequel to where that relationship began. That you, I'm kind of curious about how these people met. You know how Marty and Doc met and what Doc is. You know it says scientific services twenty four hours, but you don't really well, know what he does. You know, and this could from a, like a more psychological standpoint. Doc is also serving as somewhat of a father figure to Marty. Because consider this, he, his, they made it very clear in the beginning that his family life is mm-hmm. not horrible, but somewhat estranged. The mom's an alcoholic. She's, she loves him, but she's an alcoholic. She's not happy. The dad is very aloof, and he's very, you know, um, you know, um, oh, goodness, I can't, he, he's like a doormat. Yeah. I can't think of the word to but so I wonder if Doc is kind of serving in some way as a friend and like a fatherly type figure to Marty where he's not getting that at home. Sure. 
Sure, yeah, Marty is definitely a white sheep of his family. Mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah. say the opposite. He's the, he's, he's the, uh, I mean, he's a black sheep by the terminology, but he's just, like, he's the normal one. He's, yeah. he's the only normal The well-adjusted. Yeah. Which I guess is horrible of me to say, that all these other people aren't normal in the way they're, they're doing that, but uh, the way they're living their lives. Um, uh, but he's certainly, he is the outcast of his family. He's the only honest one. I mean, his mom is making up lies about what she was like when she was younger to him. You know, like, I never sat yeah. in the car. I never did Well, that. she didn't at that point. This was before the Marty McFly experience happened. So she may not have. Well, she no, may have been very No, straight. she did, because in the car, when she's sitting with, when Marty's doing his spit takes in the car, she's like, come on, Marty, I'm 17. It's not like I haven't sat in a parked car with a boy. <laughs> I wonder if that's just show. Yeah, well, she was smoking know. and drinking. No, honestly, yeah. Lorraine's a yeah. slut. Let's face it. I mean, think about it. None of us here have, have children, but yeah. think about your own relationship with your parents. Do you think when you were 17, your parents were telling you that, exactly. oh yeah, I went, up, <laughs> I went up to Inspiration Point every Saturday night with a different girl, Joe. Your yeah. father and I slept together the first night we met. You know, they're yeah, not yeah, going to yeah. tell you that. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. You only find that out if it's the one night stand. Or... Uh, yeah, and, and uh, what was it, George? What were you doing? Bird watching? What, Lorraine? What? No, I was, I was peeping through your window at your cross your heart bra. Yeah. <laughs> I was inter- interesting enough. I was listening to a, a, the Nerdist podcast, and there was an interview with Leah Thompson, and they were talking about, of course, Back to the Future and various other things. And she said how she got frustrated in the '80s because she was always perceived as kind of the pure, virginal, you know, kind of love interest and everything like that. Is this in real life? This is in real life. This okay. is uh, the actual Leah Thompson. She she replied like. Why am I not considered risque? I made a movie where I fell in love with my son and I made love to a duck. <laughs> that isn't weird and risque. I don't know what it is. Made love to a duck. <laughs> yes. Howard the duck. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Leah Thompson had that uh, around the same time. So I always do, liked her. Oh, yeah, I yeah, think she's a terrific she actress and she has a terrific performance mm-hmm. in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. So to sum it up, I, th- I think we're all fairly favorable, but what's your overall impression of the movie? We'll, we'll start with uh, Tony here. What, what do you oh, think? Um, I really like it. I think, I think it's a great film. It's a lot of fun. The soundtrack's great. The characters are great. It's very memorable. Uh, it's iconic for so many people. Um, I just think it's a really fun film. You know, if, if there's something that you can't take away from this movie or you don't feel good watching it, then you might have a problem. You know, I, I just think it's a, I, I don't know, I like it. I think it's a great film. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with Tony. I, I gave it four stars. I think it's um, a great movie. I, I don't know if I can recommend a movie more mm-hmm. than Back to the Future, just where you think, you don't, you can't, you can't think, imagine someone not enjoying a movie mm-hmm. if you were to if they hadn't seen it, which is hard to believe anybody has never seen this movie. It's on TV all the time. Everybody loves it. Um, so, although it was only got 96% of Rotten Tomatoes, I don't know, there's a few people. <laughs> the 4% is jealous. Yeah, it's, it's not enough uh, method. Um, <laughs> Eric Stoltz would have been better. <laughs> he would have taken it down a darker path. Um, but no, I, I, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. So, um, yeah, other than that, yeah, it's it's a great film. Yeah, it's it's hard to say anything 
to find anybody to say anything bad about Back to the Future. And I know for me personally, it is the whole trilogy, but starting with Back to the Future, they are uh, mm -hmm. some of my favorite movies. The only thing that I've, I could put above Back to the Future is It's a Wonderful Life, yes. but that's a different podcast uh, and a different reason. <laughs> it but, <will> be. <laughs> but Back to the Future is uh, it's very accessible to all ages. Uh, it's a good, it's a good family film. It's a, it's exciting. It's action packed. It has a nice, some nice love story in there. In, in this movie, as it stands alone, as well as throughout the whole film, uh, the whole series, um, I, I own this movie, uh, and I, I could watch it once a week forever. Yeah, and I concur with what everyone says. I think this is undeniably a classic film. I think uh, the screenplay, which I haven't touched too much upon, is perfectly realized. It's very tight. It's very efficient. It doesn't. There's not a lot of fat on it. It tells a very right. concise, exact story. I think uh, everyone in the cast is perfectly, you know, suited to their roles. You know, I, there's not really like a false note with any of the, any of the casting or the chemistry with the cast. I think it's enormous chemistry between Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. I think that's the heart of the whole franchise, if not the specific film, uh, because uh, that's what I think we're always drawn to is watching those two characters, Marty and Doc, interacting with each other. I kind of liken it to a modern, like today's equivalent would be Walt and Jesse from Breaking Bad, mm -hmm. this really unconventional relationship mm -hmm. of like an older guy and a... And a, like a teenager, and how, or somebody in their early twenties that are kind of interacting, the mentor-student yeah. relationship. Swap in time travel for meth. Exactly, exactly. it's yeah, the same. Yeah. It's the same parallel. Meth, yeah. time travel. Time travel was yeah. Uh, we already hinted that Doc was a dealer anyway. <laughs> right, so, right, right. Um, but I, I think it's just perfectly directed, perfectly realized. I think if you're an '80s kid, this is a movie that's going to be near and dear to your heart. I think beyond that, I think it's a timeless tale. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, cast exceptionally well, and I think that's part. Part of why this movie is so great is the cast was spot on. If you can learn anything from this movie, it's how crucial casting is to the success yeah. of a film. It's also the screenwriting, you know, mm -hmm. like how concise the story is. So Back to the Future is, is available on Blu-ray. In fact, it, it, as we speak, it's about to be released. Uh, and by the time you listen to this, it will have been released on Blu-ray, the entire trilogy in the Complete Adventures. And this actually includes the animated series as well. So it's oh, a full wow. set about pretty much everything tied to this franchise. So uh, definitely, if you're a fan of the film or the trilogy, you definitely, I think this is an essential purchase. So so I think that's uh, pretty much oh, all the time well, we have. Well, um, say who our favorite characters were. Oh, our yeah, favorite characters. My favorite is probably Doc, I'd have to say. I mean, it's a t close between Marty and Doc, but, you know, I'm a big Christopher Lloyd fan, so I'm going to have to go there. Um, yeah, just to say someone different, I, 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 there are so many characters that are just well done. I like Biff <laughs> <laughs> because it's just the iconic bully, you know, just the way he, uh, you know, the way Wilson, because I forget his first name. <laughs> Uh, portrays Tom him. Wilson. Tom Wilson is just, it's just he, he's, it's really comical and great, and how he plays the different versions of Biff, even throughout the series. So. Well, to to keep along with the different train, mm -hmm. because although I do enjoy a lot of them, Doc being one of my favorites, I do like George McFly and Lorraine <laughs> together. They're just mm -hmm. so sweet. I just think they're great characters and well cast, and 
I can kind of identify with Lorraine a lot, you know, that good girl kind of wanting to be bad every once in a while, and um, George McFly is just, he's so dreamy. <laughs> he's my dream boat. Well, and, and to be different here as well, I'm going to say uh, Goldie Wilson is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 great character. Mayor of Hill Valley in 1985, uh, busboy and... Uh, uh, All-around good guy. Positive positive energy in 1955. His middle name was Progress, you know. It was. It was. Goldie P. Wilson. It so was. And and uh, he definitely made a mark on Hill Valley. Let's yeah. That he did. So uh, to wrap this up, I want to thank our guest today, Joe Teeters. Yeah. Uh, he's thank an amazing you, guest. Uh, Joe, I know you're involved with a variety of different uh improv-related projects in town, and if you could touch base on where we can find you and follow you for those. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, two, two main things that I am working on now and uh, plan on continuing into the future are I'm doing The Bro Show with Brad Shem. Uh, we are performing twice a month down at Cafe Kerouac. That should continue for uh, the, unfor- the, the foreseeable future, uh, as well as... Um, the Improv Jam monthly at Space Bar. Yeah, if you check out Facebook, you can search for The Bro Show or search for Columbus Improv Jam, and you can find the page and find all the information on that as far as specific dates. As of right now, the Improv Jam is the first Friday of every month, mm-hmm. and the Kerouac shows for The Bro Show are the um, first and third, no, I'm sorry, the second and fourth Thursdays of the month. Second and fourth Thursdays of the month. Excellent, and thanks again for joining us, Joe. It's been a pleasure talking about this movie, and uh, uh, thanks to everybody for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.